Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, I'm Marina Yevshan, co-host of the Russian-Ukraine War Report podcast, and today is September the 27th, 2023. It's been 3,503 days since Russia's illegal occupation of Crimea on January 27, 2014, and one year and 218 days since Russia expanded its war of aggression against Ukraine. Today's podcast looks at the events that happened yesterday. You can use a Russia-Ukraine war map to help you visualize the areas discussed, and there is a link in the podcast description. The Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from our direct contacts and journalists in Ukraine, the Russian Ministry of Defense and the Ukrainian General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine Morning Reports, Operational Command North, South and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geospatial experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mail bloggers and social media channels, with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with the daily assessment, which has some updates. In our assessment, the International Committee of the Red Cross and the United Nations have been impotent in identifying, tracking and supporting Ukrainian military and civilian war prisoners resulting in the maltreatment, torture and death of Ukrainians who are supposed to be protected by the Geneva Convention. The lack of action will encourage other nations in further wars to ignore the tenets of the Geneva Convention. The Russian Ministry of Defense remains in a chaotic state, incapable of creating mission cohesion between penal units, mobics, conscripts, elite forces and proxy forces. The inability of Russian military leaders to stop the ongoing Ukrainian offensive and retake the battlefield initiative has put significant pressure on Russian chief of staff Valery Gerasimov, who has been in charge of all Russian forces in Ukraine since January 2023. Ukraine continues to hold the initiative theater-wide, and the number of combat-ineffective and combat-destroyed Russian units is growing eroding Russian combat potential in numerous areas of operation. The perceived slow progress of the ongoing Ukrainian offensive, questions about the capabilities of Ukrainian military commanders at the battalion and brigade level, and ongoing anti-corruption measures highlighting the problems within the Ukrainian government, continue to strain Western support. Western partners are still not meeting their promised military training, heavy equipment and ammunition delivery dates, negatively impacting Ukraine's military capabilities. Russia will attempt to destroy Ukraine's energy infrastructure over the fall and winter. We maintain our assessment that the continued soft response by Ukraine's allies after Russian aggression on Ukraine's border will continue to encourage Moscow to take additional risks, with the potential to cause an international incident that could lead to a military response. The possibility of an intentional nuclear accident caused by Russian occupiers at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains low, but the threat should be taken seriously. 
Today's action report starts in Kharkiv. A Russian missile hit the bridge that crosses the Oskil River between Senkove and Kruhlekivka, causing additional damage to the structure. The western section of the bridge near the abutment was destroyed in March 2022, and a ramp had been built to permit limited use. A video showed a missile striking the midspan. Quick assessment. The interruption of any ground line of communication, that is a supply line, will impact Ukrainian logistics, but given the condition the bridge was already in, how much of an impact is unclear. The acting director of the Department of Application Planning of the Main Directorate of the National Guard of Ukraine, Colonel Mikola Urshalovich, at a briefing in the military media center, said that Russian forces are refurbishing their defensive lines and restaffing units in the Kupiansk and Liman directions. Next up, the situation in the Donbass starting in Luhansk. In the Lysychansk area of operation, or AO, Russian troops attacked in the direction of Bilohorivka and were unsuccessful. It's become a tradition since August 2022. Otherwise, it remains quiet as Russia has exhausted its combat potential, relying on artillery and airstrikes. In the northeastern Donetsk region, the Russian Ministry of Defense, or ARMOD, claimed Ukrainian forces were on the offensive near Vesele, the one near Soledar. In the Klishchivka AO, Ukrainian forces advanced southeast of Andriivka, east of the railroad grade. Fighting is now 2,500 to 3,000 meters from the T-513 highway G-Log and Ukrainian forces continue to interdict Russian troops, armor and ammunition. Heavy fighting also continued north of Klishchivka. Russian forces are using multiple launch rocket systems to deploy remote mines. Next, let's talk about what's happening in southwestern Donetsk. In Avdiivka, the Russian Aerospace Forces, or VKS, bombed the iron coke plant striking a workshop and storage tanks with naphthalene, a flammable byproduct of coke production. The bombing sparked a large fire, with no injuries reported. Quick sidebar. If you've ever smelled old-school mothballs, that's naphthalene. Don't sue us, Coca-Cola. We're talking about iron coke, not coke. Armored claimed Ukrainian forces were on the offensive near Pervomaiske. There were no changes in and near Marienka, where fighting continued. North of Novomikhailivka, in the Vugledar AO, Russian forces turned a T-62 medium-duty tank into a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device. A video showed the tank advanced on Ukrainian positions with the driver jumping out. Shortly after, it struck a landmine, causing a track to be knocked off. The tank continued moving in a circle, striking a second mine, causing the explosives inside to detonate. Our daily situation report links to many of the pictures, videos and resources I discuss in today's report. You can subscribe to our Patreon for as little as $5 a month, and we offer a 7-day free trial. You can find a link in the podcast description or search Patreon for Malcontent News. Hello, new patrons! 
Thank you for supporting me and Zarina Zabriskie. In the Staromlinivka AO, up to two platoons of Russian forces attempted to advance on Urozhaina from the east, suffered heavy losses and returned to their defensive positions. Here is what's happening in Zaporizhia. Ukrainian forces conducted 1,085 fire missions, a 20% increase from the last 5 to 7 days, suggesting the operational pause is coming to an end. Fighting continued from Verbova to Novoprokopivka. Colonel Urshalovich, at a briefing in the military media center, said the Russian VKS had increased the number of airstrikes. Operational security from Ukraine remains tight, and when things don't go well for Russian forces, they don't say a lot. Now let's talk about the Black Sea, including the countries of Romania and Bulgaria, occupied Crimea and the Mykolaiv and Odessa regions. The Black Sea fleet of Russia has been making some moves. Satellite images shared by analyst M.T. Anderson showed that Russia is redeploying warships to the port of Feodosia, which is on the southern coast of occupied Crimea and is likely believed to be a safer location. On September the 25th, the pictures showed three corvettes, two minesweepers and a Ropuha-class Project 775 large landing ship. If you are more familiar with the Corvette sports car than the Corvette naval ship, the car got its name from fast attack boats used in World War II called Corvettes. On September the 25th, when Russia fired 12 caliber cruise missiles at the Odessa area, one kilo-class submarine launched its missiles from the bay in Novorossiysk, Russia. In our assessment, launching within the bay instead of a designated firing area indicates the attack was hurriedly ordered or there is a deep concern about Ukraine's asymmetrical warfare capabilities. In occupied Crimea, new pictures showed the extent of damage to the Black Sea headquarters in Sevastopol. The north building is completely gutted and the west wing is heavily damaged. We link to the pictures in the situation report. Now it's time to discuss Kherson, which was hit with the highest number of munitions since we've tracked the numbers. Kherson Oblast Administrative and Military Governor, or OVA, Oleksandr Prokudin, said Russia carried out 96 fire missions on Free Kherson firing 671 munitions, rockets, drone-delivered IEDs and bombs. An artillery shell struck three women walking in Kherson, killing them instantly. A woman walking to the post office in Antonivka was hospitalized with shrapnel wounds. Four other civilians were injured in other attacks. My executive producer and co-host Zarina Zabrisky is still on assignment in Kherson and will have her report later in the podcast. I have an update from our analyst team about yesterday's attack on Kirovograd, 
we are all puzzled about what Russia was trying to accomplish by striking the Cold War-era military unit A-1201 storage facility in Bogdanivka. The Russian Ministry of Defense didn't say anything about it, nor did the usual suspects of larger Russian male bloggers. The consensus among even the most noisy Russian propagandists is this was a site with outdated munitions, and anything usable or restorable had been removed years ago. Our preliminary assessment is this was a Cold War site with outdated materials. If a drone hits ammunition from the 1950s and no one saw it, did it really happen? Here is the news from the Russian front. The Freedom of Russia Legion conducted border raids in Staroselye and Terebrina, Belgorod. They didn't provide details on the raid's purpose or if they accomplished their mission. Russian officials in Belgorod acknowledged attacks by sabotage and reconnaissance units and provided a questionable account of glorious victory. Russia has repeatedly claimed they killed members of the Legion by name, only for the deceased to reappear thanks to our secret NATO-provided biolabs with cloners operated by Polish super-scientists. The last part is made up. They reappear because they were never dead in the first place. On the Belarusian front, the Ministry of Defense of Belarus claimed that Polish helicopters violated their airspace twice over 80 minutes. The Potato Kingdom accused Poland of flying 1,500 meters over the border in the first incident and 300 meters in the second. At the time of publication, Polish officials had not released a statement. Now let's talk about theater-wide events. Ukraine was elected to the International Atomic Energy Agency Board of Directors. After hearing the news, President Volodymyr Zelensky tweeted, or exed, or zitted. This is what he said, quote, The country remains a reliable international partner in the field of nuclear energy and we will make every effort to strengthen the important role of the IAEA and strengthen nuclear safety and security. We must all work together, everyone in the world who values safety, to end all forms of nuclear blackmail which Russia is trying to make the norm." End quote. Missile debris was found in a lake in southeast Moldova, near the settlement of Aneni Noi. The wreckage was tentatively identified as part of an air-to-ground missile, and officials said there was no danger. It is unknown how long the debris was in the water or its point of origin. NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg was in Kyiv for an unannounced visit, meeting with President Zelensky, who described the meeting as meaningful. In addition to Stoltenberg, the Minister of Defense of France, with up to 20 defense industry executives, and the Chief of the Defense Staff of Great Britain were in Kyiv for unannounced meetings with Zelensky and Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces, General Valery Zaluzhny. 
Reuters Thompson reported that NATO has signed 2.4 billion euros in contracts to supply Ukraine with ammunition. Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh told reporters that Ukrainian pilots officially started their F-16 training in Texas. Good news! Their training will likely end today, with the United States government set to shut down on October 1 due to an ongoing budget battle in Congress. Switzerland has approved the transfer of 25 Leopard 2A4 main battle tanks to German arms manufacturer Rheinmetall, as long as they aren't transferred to Ukraine. In our assessment, the Leopard 2 will be used in a future circular trade agreement. Another nation will transfer its tanks to Ukraine in exchange for the ones received by Rheinmetall. The armed forces of Ukraine released a video showing a Finnish M46 130mm towed howitzer in service. The Soviet-designed M46 was built from 1946 to 1950 and has a range of up to 38 kilometers. What's going on in Russia? It's time for Mobics, Mobilization and Mir. President Zelensky denied an Institute for the Study of War report that Iran would supply ballistic missiles to Russia starting in October. Quote, Currently, there are no facts of Iran selling missiles to Russia. Our services are in contact with partners and are dealing with this issue. Unquote. Partners are dealing with this issue? Is that partners are talking to Iran dealing with the issue? Or will someone sneak into Iran and make things go boom dealing with the issue? Russian President Vladimir Putin met with Andrei Troshev, a former private military company Wagner Group Council of Commanders member. Putin confirmed that he had requested Troshev, who had Kremlin-aligned PMC Redut, to prepare units for deployment to Ukraine. Previously, he was the chief of staff for Wagner Group and was the first member of the Council of Commanders to pledge loyalty to the Russian Ministry of Defense after the Prigozhin insurrection. Russian Major General Vyacheslav Labuska, who was one of the leaders of the VZG Early Warning Radar System project to detect a nuclear strike on Russia, was sentenced to five years with the sentence suspended and fined 34,155,000 rubles. Labuska ran into trouble due to embezzling funds from the project and the fact that the Voronezh radar system he signed off didn't work. Ukraine has noticed manufacturing changes to Shahid-136 drones, hinting that serial production has started in Russia. The warhead has changed and now contains tungsten BBs. The engine is now from the Canadian company Micropilot, the body is composite instead of a solid molded piece and the foam filling has changed. The navigation system is a Russian-made Comet block. Captain Andriy Rudik, a representative of the Center of the Research of Trophy and Prospective Weapons and Military Equipment of the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, criticized existing sanctions as ineffective and said that the changes don't change the capabilities of the Shahid-136, but have likely lowered production costs. 
Sanctions required Russia to develop its own reservation system for commercial airlines called Leonardo, which was knocked offline for multiple airlines due to a distributed denial of service attack. The outage caused flight delays and cancellations across Russia, with Pobeda and Aeroflot hit the hardest. In our War Crimes and Human Rights section, the Russian-Ukraine War Report podcast can discuss human rights abuses that can include graphic descriptions of violence. Today's report contains mild graphic content. You can move to the next chapter if you find content like this disturbing. The timestamps are in the podcast description. The Security Service of Ukraine, or SBU, collected evidence that Chechen Ahmad Colonel Zelimhan Agmirzoev was responsible for the torture and execution of Ukrainian POWs and civilians, and blackmailed family members. Agmirzoev, a commander, led squads in Melitopol to detain civilians. While civilians and soldiers were tortured, he demanded as much as $13,500 to close family members to end the abuse. He threatened to cut off body parts if people didn't pay as proof of their captivity. In Rostov-on-Don, Russia, show trials are ongoing for 24 Ukrainian soldiers who defended Azovstal in Mariupol. They are among the almost 2,000 soldiers, territorial guards, police and volunteers who surrendered on May 12, 2022 as part of a United Nations and International Committee of the Red Cross brokered deal between Ukraine and Russia. The Red Cross and Russian and Western press monitored and recorded the surrender. Almost 300 have been released since June 2022, and 56 were killed in an explosion at Olenivka penal colony. It is widely believed that Russia intentionally killed the prisoners. After stating they would accept a third-party investigation, they blocked the Red Cross and the United Nations from accessing the site. As outrage grew over the explosion at Olenivka, the Red Cross stated they could not assure the proper treatment of the prisoners in Russian custody and were only granted brief access to Olenivka once. Today, Russia released a shocking photo of a skeletal Azovstal defender who appears shirtless in the Rostov-on-Don courtroom. He looks like he has come from a concentration camp, and there are no words to describe how bad he looks. The truth matters. If this is acceptable to Russia to put in public, what is happening that no one sees? I can't hand off my show to Zarina Zabrisky ending on war crimes. Here are some brief highlights of geopolitical news. Hungary presented the self-proclaimed president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, with his credentials, becoming the first European nation to recognize the dark potato prince as a legitimate leader. The numbers are in, the election results have been shared 
and Reunification Day is coming on September the 30th. After Russia held illegal elections in the occupied territories of Ukraine, two countries came forward and said they accepted the results – North Korea and Syria. And that's what happened on September the 28th. Your support of my home, Ukraine, helps us make history and protect the future for all. Now, let me turn the podcast over to our executive producer and my co-host, Zarina Zabrisky, who's reporting from Free Kherson. As you know, I'm reporting from Kherson. It's a war zone. As we just arrived here, friends sent us a post they found on a Russian telegram channel. The Russians knew that we are in Kherson. A day later, a shell destroyed a house by which we had a small gathering interviewing people. We had to change places. We're still on the go. And my colleague, Paul Conroy, a veteran war correspondent, wrote about it in his Kramatorsk diaries. The chapter is called Hunted. Today, as I hear explosions, we will speak about the tragedy that happened 82 years ago in Kiev, in Babin Yar. In September 29th, 30th, 1941, Shortly after the Nazis occupied Kyiv, an estimated 33,000 were rounded up from the city and its surroundings, along with an unknown number of Polish and Roma people and Soviet prisoners of war. They were marched to Babin Yar, where they were forced to undress and face a firing squad. Their bodies were disposed of in the ravine. My paternal great-grandparents were among them. I visited Babin Yar in 2023 on the first anniversary of the Russian invasion in Ukraine. I'm by synagogue in Kherson. It's very empty, very few people are outside, even though it's a beautiful sunny day, very pleasant, very warm. It's fall already, so there are dried leaves everywhere. Usually Ukrainian streets are very clean and there are no dry leaves, but right now there's no one to clean them. The few janitors that you see around are wearing bulletproof vests and helmets. The building is in white and gray colors, very elegant, understated. The windows are blocked from inside with a film or a cardboard, a little garden with roses that are still blooming, beautiful gates. And I'm going in to meet the chief rabbi of Kherson. Could you please introduce yourself, Rabbi? Yeah, chief rabbi of Kherson and Kherson history, Rabbi Yosef Itzhak Wolf. Thank you, Rabbi. Could you tell us, please, about the life of Jewish community in Kherson today? Let's say that I'm here in Kherson since 1993, 31 years in Kherson. 
all those years has to do with future of the life of the Jewish community. When I say future, I mean kindergarten, Jewish day school, education, huge programs, young people, middle age, since uh, February 24, 2022, the life change. We have to call the situation as, as it is. We deal with save lives of the local people. First of all, the Jewish community, but not just the Jewish community. And everyone in this city, if he needs something, he knows that he can come to the synagogue. We will try to do the best, as we did a lot in the last almost two years, the last 18 months. Save life means medicate food, necessary food. I'm not talking about the ice cream and some chocolate. We give chocolate also to people, yeah, to give them a little, uh, you know, say a little smile. You should be a little happy. But we really saved their lives. We made a packaged food for the last 18 months, I think not less than 100,000. How big was the Jewish community in Kherson before the full-scale invasion? I think that uh, before the war, before the February 24, it was uh, 3,500 Jewish mm-hmm. family. Right. Between 70 or 80% from the population left the city. So all in all in Kherson region there will be 20,000? Yes, approximately 20,000. Oh, it's a fairly big community. A lot of them left. We help a lot people to leave because the situation in the city became very, very dangerous. As you know, we were under occupation for nine months. It wasn't easy. Right now, a lot of people live in the city. Because there is no work in in the city, there is no job, there is no nothing. As you see alone, a couple of days in the city, you can see it. We're based here, so we see what's going on. Yeah, yeah. No, non-stop fire, there's curfew since uh, 8 p.m. till 6 a.m. And you can see that uh, on the street since, I think, uh, 4 p.m., the city is totally empty. So people that has children or thinking about the future... Right now, the situation in the city is very sad. And I know that you've been consistently helping and saving people also during the flood. It was March 10, 2022. I remember this uh, date because uh, I think this the second my birthday. The situation in the city was very bad. It wasn't Medicaid, it wasn't food, because the city was totally occupied and it was impossible to bring something from Ukraine inside to the city. And I, we realized that there is a lot of people that need very necessary Medicaid for high, high blood pressure or, or for the heart or for diabetes. My brother, Crimea, I sent him a list of a lot of Medicaid. We decided he will send his car from Crimea to the board of uh, Kherson and Crimea. And I have to send my car from this side. We will take the food and the medicine. But there was uh, one problem, There's no one driver wants to go. And I decide with my wife that I should drive. So I take a minivan and we decide at 4 o'clock p.m. his car will come to the board and I will go since 4 o'clock. I can do it easily, come back home till the curfew. The curfew started at 8 o'clock. But they were delayed for four hours. And on the way back, 
I drive the car in the curfew and the road was, uh, I think, approximately 25 military checkpoints. Every checkpoint, it was very, very dangerous. One of the intersections, I was not sure if I have to make a left in this intersection or there in the next one. So I stopped the car. I was standing maybe five or seven seconds with my car and it started charting from the right side of the car. And I stopped the car and they were maybe one meter far away from my car, 20 soldiers, approximately. And they started shooting, and I realized that any mistake is game over. I put on the, the light in the, in the car, and they see me, they were screaming on the floor. So I opened up the, the door, and I fell, fell on the floor, on the, on the road. It was uh, outside, was, the temperature was uh, minus 10, I think, Celsius. Yeah. I was very cold. I started screaming. I say, my name is uh, Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Wolf. I'm the chief rabbi of Kherson District. I have a humanitarian aid in my car, you can see. They were screaming, I was screaming, they were shouting. I was, uh, yeah. Thank God the situation became, took some control on the situation. And they realized that I'm, uh, I'm a religious rabbi serving his community. Then their commander came over to me because when they shouting, it was already like a situation, so they didn't let me go until the commander would come. So he told me, you know, you're lucky that you had a mistake if you have to make a left here on the next, uh, because if you wouldn't have a mistake and you go like straight, in 10 kilometers, they shutting everything that moving. You're lucky that you're here till, the, till 6 o'clock in the morning when the curfew will end and go, then go back home. Thank you so much for doing... You know, sometimes when I was in the situation, in the middle of the situation, you don't feel that you... You don't feel that you do something unusual. But late, when I realized what happened, I really thank God, thank God that I had the opportunity to do these things to help those people because if not the Jewish community, a lot of people were passed away in this period. And we really saved their lives. A young girl, maybe 16 or 17 years, she came over to me. It was evening already. It was dark on the street, maybe 6 o'clock. February, March, and she told me, Rabbi, please save my life. I said, what happened? Actually, she had a diabetes, and I need emergency insulin. I don't have insulin, and I need it now. And my wife standing next to me, and you see the death in her eyes. And I say, why Why you came to the synagogue? We're not pharmacy. Her father was standing behind. behind. He told me, I have a friend in Israel. They told me, go to the synagogue. They indefinitely will help you. Not Jewish people. Talk. So I called to one of uh, my good friends, is the uh, CEO of one of the hospitals in Kherson. I told them, uh, Timofeyevich, please, I'm sending you a young girl. Don't say no. You must help her. So in 15 minutes, her father called me and said, thank you, Rabbi. The Jewish community is part of the, the big community. And if we live here, we're part of this community. So you must, be, you must do everything to help everyone. This is one of the... Can you speak to our audience and explain the situation these days with anti-Semitism? This land has a big history. A lot of Jewish people got killed here in the Second World War. It's a lot of stories. I'm sure there are some bad people. It's all over bad people, including Ukraine also. But when we are talking about the, the connect, let's say, between the government and the Jewish community, 
Well, since 1993, we always feeling welcome here in Ukraine. As the leader of the Jewish community here in Kherson, for the last three decades, we feel very comfortable with the government. I'm sure that there, there are some anti-Semitism here in Ukraine, but not in the level of the, of the government. When I'm looking at the, the last three decades, the Jewish community grew in Ukraine very seriously. Jewish kindergarten, Jewish day schools, a lot of program with, with young, young Jewish organization. I'm sitting right now here with you in the very beautiful synagogue hour. Happy holidays. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just say Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach. Yeah. Chag Sameach to everyone. Thank you. Well, thank you, Rebbe. I am here with Adam Zivo, Canadian journalist based in Ukraine. And I will have Adam tell us a little bit about your life and reporting. So hi, as mentioned, uh, I'm Adam Zivo. I've been in Ukraine for about a year and a half at this point. I came to Ukraine for the first time in March of 2022, about two weeks after the war began. Initially, I went to Poland just to report on the refugee crisis. But when I saw Ukraine, I actually fell in love with the country despite the war. And ended up spending, you know, over a year here and become quite acquainted with what conditions on the ground have been like. Your focus is propaganda. Yes. So I read about a whole bunch of different things. But one thing I've been very interested in is engaging in counter-propaganda by spotlighting minority communities who disagree with Russia's characterization of Ukraine as a Nazi-controlled country. So the three groups that I've specifically focused on have been LGBTQ people, because I'm gay, the Jewish community, because I'm based in Odessa, and that's a very big thing there, and racialized Ukrainians, because I think that their voices have often been overlooked. Russia has spent years and billions of dollars fostering this image of Ukraine as being a country that is controlled by the far right and is governed by a network of neo-Nazis. Anyone who's been in Ukraine knows that this narrative is ridiculous. When you look at the parliamentary voting records of Ukraine, the far right has never had more than 5% of the national vote since 2014. And even before that, you know, never had really anything beyond that number. When you look at municipal elections, that number still holds. The far right is very unpopular in Ukraine. But the problem is that you can tell people numbers, but they won't really understand it because people don't resonate with numbers, which is why it's important to tell the personal stories of minority groups who would have the most accurate assessment of the presence of the far right in this country. I mean, the fact is that I'm fundamentally a journalist, not an activist. And so I make sure that my reporting is about telling the truth rather than trying to press a particular political agenda. But it just happens to be that in this case, the truth is that Ukraine is not a Nazi country. I want to be able to help people see that, to see the realities that I see on the ground. 
I'm very interested to hear what you got to say about it. So let's dig into it. Well, I'm going to focus specifically on the LGBTQ community first. So I spoke with uh, LGBTQ leaders across Ukraine. This was in April of 2022. And I spoke with them about propaganda narratives about Ukraine. And they had vehemently disagreed with any assessment of Ukraine as being controlled by the far right. Now, obviously, many of these activists had been harassed by far-right figures in the past because that's to be expected in Eastern Europe. And so they acknowledged that it existed to a certain extent. But what they emphatically said was that its presence and power was being grossly exaggerated by Russia and Russian allies. One thing that they also said that was quite interesting is that it was their belief that much of the far-right was financed by Russia. And that's something that we see in Western Europe and North America as well. They found it disgusting that some people will say, oh, uh, we shouldn't support Ukraine because there's far-right people who are persecuting LGBTQ folk there. Whereas the LGBTQ Ukrainians will say, well, those far-right people who are persecuting us are doing so because they get money from Russia. It's interesting that you're saying this, Adam, because I was doing research and investigations into the Russian funding of the American neo-Nazis. Well, well that's the thing, is that I think that in the West, there's a appreciation amongst progressives of how much Russia invests into empowering the far right. But for some reason, a lot of North American progressives can't seem to wrap their head around the fact that this happens in Eastern Europe as well. And when you hear about surging far right voices in Eastern Europe, that's likely going to be something that's funded by Moscow. Let's talk about another demographic group. Well, let's talk about um, visible minorities within Ukraine, because that's something that was discussed quite a bit at the very beginning of the war. At the beginning of the war, we saw a lot of discourse about the existence of racism in Ukraine, because when everyone was trying to flee the country in the first two weeks, some people who were of African or Indian or Middle Eastern descent did experience legitimate racism and they were harassed. Now, not every example of tension was actually racism. Some Nigerian refugees who I'd spoken to said that the trains prioritized women and children over men. And unfortunately, some black and brown men believed that they were being kept off of trains because of their skin color rather than because of their gender. So there was a misunderstanding there. But, you know, there were obviously examples of racism there. Now, when I first came to Ukraine, I made a point of interviewing anyone who was racialized, who I could come across and ask them, what are your experiences? And invariably, they would say that, yes, racism exists to a certain extent, but it was nowhere near as bad as the international media made it out to be. And on the whole, they felt very comfortable. Of the interviews who I'd spoken with, they said this was a relatively new phenomenon, and that, let's say, in the early 2010s, Ukraine was a very different country and racism was much bigger of an issue. But they say that as of now, it's not very much a big problem, and that kind of comes from the fact that you have a lot of international students from India and Nigeria coming in and challenging stereotypes. You have a very big African community which is invisible to the international community when they look at Ukraine. Once again, I kept on hearing again and again and again, people saying that racism is not as big of a deal as people would say. And what I think is interesting here is that the, the very same journalists who were so preoccupied about racism in Ukraine at the beginning of the war never thought to follow up with racialized people in Ukraine after those first two weeks. They only seemed interested in talking about black and brown people in Ukraine, so long as they could use that to talk about how racist Ukraine was. The moment they couldn't use it to talk about racism, the moment they saw a more positive and inclusive narrative emerge, 
they disappeared. And I think that can be tied back to some Western reporters towards Ukraine, where they believe Ukraine and Eastern Europe more generally has to be this backwards and angry place. And they can't recognize the fact that Ukraine is much more cosmopolitan and accepting than many believe it to be. I think that many of them come from a very North American lens where everything has to be about racism. And when you combine that with their chauvinistic attitude towards Eastern Europe, that predisposes them towards searching for certain narratives. One thing that happened in my reporting, which I'm still mad about, is that I had done an in-depth report about gay Nigerian refugees in Ukraine, you know, which is a very niche population. I think I'm the only person who's like probably written about this. <laughs> and I, I wrote this article for a progressive publication, an LGBTQ one. And when I submitted my initial draft to the editor there, the editor said, this is unacceptable. He essentially said that I was lying about the refugees because they were saying that it was like Ukraine was not as racist as people said it to be. And I said, well, you can look at the transcripts. This is exactly what they said. And the editor changed my work to exaggerate how racist, how racist Ukraine is. I basically told him that I don't feel ethically comfortable accepting your edits because you are trying to pressure me to, to misrepresent the truth to say that, to, to say, to, to put words in these men's mouth. And I actually had to withdraw my article from that publication because they just would not accept the fact that gay Nigerian refugees didn't feel like racism was so terrible in this country. Thank you so much for this in-depth analysis. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on here. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.